So if we were to follow you around this week with a hidden camera, what would we say your life revolves around? If you were to follow me around this week and monitor my every step and everything I do, what would you say that my life revolves around? We're going to talk about that today from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read these verses together, or I'll read them in your presence. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we need your word. We need your help through your spirit for me to make it clear, to be faithful to your truth, to apply it to our lives. We need you. We need Jesus. So, Jesus, meet us in our weakness and in our time of need. Grant us your spirit to teach us your word, to change us and transform us more to be like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Be seated. So, Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Romans. We've been in Romans for several weeks. If you've been around... You notice that? He says, I appeal to you, therefore. I appeal to you. So he's urging, he's appealing, he's making an exhortation. And he says, therefore. So he's basing upon something that he's already said. And we don't have to wonder what too much about what he's talking about because he says, by the mercies of God. But what does he mean by the mercies of God? When he says, I appeal to you, I urge you, I exhort you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What's he talking about? Well, most immediately, he was talking about what he said just a few verses in advance of this, and into chapter 11, where Paul had been talking about God's amazing plan of salvation, working out his plan for saving the Gentiles and the Jews only by his mercy, and proving that because of disobedience, our default mode is disobey God, and the consequences are there. And so that only through God's mercy could, could he rescue us from our sin and give us life. So he did that through calling the Jews to be his own people. Then they disobeyed and salvation came to the Gentiles. Then when the Gentiles all come in, then the Jews will turn to Christ in mass number. And that's God's plan for history. So he's, he's working out his plan of mercy for all of history. And then Paul praised God for that in verses 33 to 36. He said, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Oh, the depth of the riches of, and wisdom and knowledge of God. So he's, he gets all excited about God's mercy. But I think what he's talking about is beyond that. He really is stretching back to chapter 1 all the way up through verse 36 of chapter 11, talking about God's saving mercies in Christ. Because all that God, Christ has done for us is the result of God's mercy. So he spent the first five chapters talking about the fact that we are counted right in God's sight only by faith in Christ because of Christ's death and resurrection. 
So he, he spent five chapters on that. He said, through, through Christ, we have peace with God. In chapter six, he said, we, we have union with Christ. We're united with him. And through that, we're freed from sin and we're uh, liberated from its power. And then in chapter seven and eight, he talks about how even though uh, the law exposed our sin, in Christ, we have received the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, we're, we're uh, sanctified. That is, we're made more holy. We're made like Christ. And God guarantees that we're going to end up there because he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So he's given us massive, extensive mercies. And that's what he's talking about when he says, By the mercies of God, I appeal to you, therefore. So what's he appealing to us for? By the mercies of God. Well, he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, why so much loaded into God's mercies before he says, therefore? Why, did, why does he spend 11 chapters piling on all this truth about God's mercies that he's had on us? And why didn't he just get right to it and start from the beginning saying, just do this is how you're supposed to live. Just do it. In fact, most of us would probably, probably prefer that he, he got to the just do it right away. Just tell me, tell me, tell me what I need to do. Well, I believe it's because we need transformed understanding to live out our salvation transformation. We need transformed understanding to live out our salvation transformation. God wanted us to be deeply rooted in what He's done for us, because it's we're supposed to really get that it's only because of His mercy that we we have anything to offer back to Him. We're not re-earning our salvation. We're not working it out. Uh, we're not trying to maintain his favor. He has rescued us by his mercy, and that motivates everything that we do. Our whole life is, is mercy-driven to be that way. And he wants us to get that, so he drills it into us, deeply rooting us in God's mercies. So that I, I'm supposed to understand that in Christ, my whole life is a result of and a response to God's mercies. And so he says, here's how I'm, how I'm to live, to present my body as a living sacrifice. He's intentionally using Old Testament sacrificial language. So he's, he's saying all the, the Old Testament pointed to is being fulfilled in Christ. And he says, present your bodies. Does he mean just do stuff with your body and regardless of what's going on inside? What, he's, what he means by this is we present our bodies we offer our whole self, our whole life to God. Our body is a temple for worshiping God. As Paul says in another place, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And we present our bodies, our whole life, as a sacrifice to God. What, what is he talking about, a sacrifice? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, it was you sacrificed animals. And those were pointing toward the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. But now we in Christ are to respond by, by, by being a living sacrifice. What, what's he talking about? Well, sacrifice in general is you, you're giving up something for something else you value. You're giving up something for something else you value. And more than that, sacrifice is best motivated by love. We talk about sacrificing for those we love. We sacrifice for our kids. Our kids, when we get older, hopefully they sacrifice for us. So we, we love and gratitude make um, motivate our sacrifice. And so what am I giving up? I'm giving up independence. I'm giving up living for myself. I'm yielding myself totally to God. 
as a sacrifice. That's what he's after. Our whole life, he owns. And what kind of sacrifice are we? Well, we're a living, holy, pleasing to God sacrifice. So he's talking about our life is to be God-centered. Our life is to be Godward. My life is built around living for him. God's priorities are mine. We see examples of this in everyday life. People are building their lives around things. Their, their, their lives revolve around different activities. So uh, Greg Goosebury was sharing with me about um, a couple of examples he saw recently. Um, kiteboarders. I don't know if anybody here is a kiteboarder, but he was observing the other day that how their vehicles are all designed for kiteboarding and how they um, how expensive the equipment is and and how if you're a kiteboarder you've got to be fully into it if you're going to do well at it beyond that he also shared with the example of, of a friend of his who's uh, into trail running he runs 50k trail trail runs do the math what is that mileage 50k 31 miles close so his friend who runs who does trail running um, he, he too has a vehicle that's designed for being able to sleep in the van going out every other day and, and running 20 miles a day and he's his diet revolves around it his job uh, revolves around it he's a teacher so he can do trail running all summer and everything he does is to maximize his capacity as a trail runner. And so we're not saying that it's wrong to be a trail runner or a kiteboarder or a golfer or a boater, but, but this is examples of when we value something, when we are dedicated to something, we, our life revolves around it. And we, we evaluate all of our expenses, all of our eating, all of our habits, the way we live around what we're interested in. And he, Paul says, this is your spiritual service of worship. This is your spiritual worship. So what's he talking about there? Well, spiritual talks about that we do this from the heart. It's not just going through the motions. It's not something that we do just outwardly. Uh, we do it because we, we love to do it. So it's our spiritual worship. And that word spiritual could be translated reasonable. It also has that meaning. So um, what the parallel meaning there is that our motivation is because of God's saving mercies in Christ, and we're compelled. We want to. We want to, to worship God with our whole lives. We love to do that. And in fact, what Paul's saying here is this is the repair of what he brought up in chapter 1, verse 25. I think I may have that verse on the screen, where uh, Paul says, The problem with humanity is they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So we had a worship disorder. That's our basic problem. All of us are worshipers. We, we cannot but worship something or someone. And um, so Jesus is about repairing, restoring true worship. Jesus came to redeem us to, to right worship and to fulfill the Old Testament types of priests, temple sacrifice so he came to say this is what true worship is and we see this in john chapter 4 verses 23 to 25 24 
But the hour is coming, and he's talking to a woman at the well in Samaria, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So worship is not about a holy location. It's not about a special holy people. It's not about priests. It is a living relationship with God from a new heart, holy and acceptable through Christ. So it's, it's not about a holy people. It's not just about the Jews now. It's about all peoples who have come to Christ. It's not about priests anymore. It's through the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And it's not about a holy location. It's about God's holy worship lived out among his people. So now the worship of God has gone viral. The worship of God is highly mobilized. It's no longer centered on the temple. It's no longer centered in any building. It's centered in where God's people name the name of Christ. And so that helps the gospel spread, helps the worship of God spread. His, his whole purpose is to, to have some from every people group worshiping him. And so uh, in these times where many places you can't build church buildings, many places you're persecuted for, for being a Christian, um, Christians gather in homes, they gather into trees. God is worshipped among all peoples throughout the world because worship of God has gone mobile. So we're still to assemble together to, because much of our worship takes place in serving one another. But it's no longer dedicated to a church building. Hey, I love this building. It's a great building. But we don't need this building to worship God. And there's nothing holy about the wood or the structure. It was dedicated to God, so it, yes, it's been used for holy purpose, but there's nothing about this building that, that makes it uniquely uh, right for us to worship in it. So worshiping God with my whole life as a way of life involves what he talks about in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. They'll be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. What's he talking about? Uh, well, don't let my attitudes and my thinking be shaped by the present age. Literally, the, the word for world is age. Um, the, the world, the age, is whatever makes dedication to God seem weird or strange or wrong. Or it uses God as a mascot or as a genie for its needs, but it doesn't honor God as Lord over the culture. It seems so simple just to say, keep worshiping God as a way of life, and, uh, and that's his priority for us. But Israel had a hard time doing that. They continually defaulted back to worshiping idols. Why was that so hard for them? Because our hearts gravitate away from God and toward uh, making God serve our needs. Not being conformed to this world is not about being conformed to a particular time. It's not like, well, if we were just living in the 50s, it would be more holy times. Or if we were just living in the 1600s or the thousands or the 800s, it would be better. It's not, being, it's not freezing a certain point in time and saying this, this was the high water mark of holiness. Uh, so Amish people dress in 16th, 17th century clothing, 17th, 18th century clothing. That's fine. There's no problem with that. But does that make them more holy just by adopting a certain point in time clothing, external styles? Um, it's not. It's not about that. 
not about being conformed in outward ways. It's not like just disengaging from everything in the culture. So um, my computer crashed yesterday. Just when the sermon was getting finished, it crashed and I lost it. So as I'm here, I'm piecemealing it back together. Um, technology is good and it's bad. It can be used for evil and it can be used for good. So you could just say, well, you don't need a computer, and I don't need a computer to live. But if you see me depressed and, and wearing sackcloth for the next several weeks, you'll know that it got to me. You got that wrong, bud. So it's not about uh, the external things, having them, not having them. It's about um, not being conformed to the world's attitudes. We are separated from the world, from the present age, as our ruling power by salvation. So when God saves us, he saves us out of the world as the dominant power in our lives. But he sends us back into the world to bless and to share and to show the way of salvation through the gospel. We need to think like missionaries. We've talked about this before because we are them. That's what we are. And so in thinking like missionaries, we, we ask, what is redeemable in the culture? What can I freely use for God's glory that uh, helps me serve God's cause? Or what must, I be, what must be rejected in the culture? So when you go, go into a culture where there's polygamy, how do you handle that? Well, God's design is for one man with one woman for life, and so, but you you move into that, embracing the things you can, and then you work for transformation. That's how we are missionaries in our culture. We we embrace the things we can, and we work for transformation. How do I live in in the culture in a way that doesn't just reflect back to to them its values and unbelief in Jesus? I don't want to just reflect back to them their same values that they have. Jesus didn't avoid everything in his culture. He ate with the rejects, but everyone knew he was wholly devoted to God. There was no question about Jesus' devotion to God. Jesus didn't avoid everything in the culture, but he, he was totally devoted to God. So not being conformed to this world, to this age, is not merely about having a list of don'ts. You don't just come up with a list and say, I'm not going to do these things. Um, my list may not look like your list. But it does involve letting the, not letting the values, the attitudes, the practices of the culture shape you, squeeze you into its mold. And it's God-rejecting, God-belittling mold. Not being conformed does involve not letting the culture keep me from being wholly devoted to God. So that's the core. Can I, can I still be devoted to God as the center of my life and do these things? Or does it siphon off my heart away from God? As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. That's to be my obsession. Be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. That's supposed to shape everything I do. So don't be conformed, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
not by adopting outward behaviors, certain outward behaviors merely, not by looking inside yourself and tapping into your inner whatever and finding it within yourself. I don't transform myself. Be transformed. Don't transform yourself. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes, anybody remember Calvin and Hobbes? He didn't transform himself. He stepped into what was called a transmogrifier. He got it. And he came out as a dinosaur or stupendous man or whatever he was trying to transform himself into. So we do that through mind renewal. How does my mind get renewed? Well, it gets renewed in the things that God loves. What does God love more than anything else? Sunday school answer, Jesus. So we, we, our minds are transformed by focusing on Jesus. I get that from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We may have that up on the screen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how do, how do I behold Jesus? I can't see him yet. I, I, but I, I focus on him by reading the Gospels. That's what we learn about Jesus. We see how he ministered, how he lived and died, what he taught, the miracles he did, how he reflected the glory of God in, in true humanity. We uh, read the New Testament letters that talk about how do we live as a result of what Christ has done for us through his death, resurrection, and his ascension and sending the Spirit, how that shapes my identity. So, so I can say with Paul, to me to live is Christ. To me to live is Christ. I'm living out of my identity in Christ, not other identities that, that's put on me by the world. So I'm always asking, who am I in Christ? How does that shape how I live, how, what my attitudes are? Read Revelation, and you see the glory of Christ in his ultimate kingdom, in his victory. Or you read the Old Testament and see how he fulfills the forms, the prophecies, the priests and the kings. All the, he fulfills many parts of the Old Testament. It's all about him. My mind is renewed by Bible saturation, saturating my mind in the Scripture. So if you don't read much or you don't have time, you don't think you have time, listen to it on iTunes as you're in the car. But you've got time to read the Bible, and you're supposed to read it for the big picture so you see how God has worked throughout the course of history, and you're reading it for the specific beliefs and behaviors. Like we're going to see throughout the Romans chapter 12 to 15, specific ways that we're to, to live out our, our life in Christ. My mind is transformed as I pray. Prayer includes praising God, repentance, crying out to him when your computer crashes, asking God for all kinds of things, help in relationships, in school and work, in ministry, in overcoming sin, in living for him. We pray for what he's doing in, in the mission world, in our own mission. We share in the word and worship and fellowship together and serving together. 
we share in the communion meal. We're going to do that today. There's a unique way that I believe Christ meets with us in the communion meal that's, that's not, um, that we miss when, when we don't frequently take it together. As it says in, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, or 2 Corinthians 10, that the cup and the bread are sharing in the body of, and blood of Christ. So there's a way that he communicates, renews our faith, renews our spiritual connection with him through the, taking communion together. And um, we're going to do that typically at Harvest. We've been doing it once a month. And there's nothing magic about that. I think the fear on part of, of some churches has been, and I don't know how this started here, but if we do it too frequently, it becomes an empty ritual. Well, anything can become an empty ritual. And so it's what we put into it, what we recognize that Christ is doing through it. So uh, we'll, we're transformed by the continual feeding on our faith in Jesus Christ through taking the Lord's Supper together. And he says, we do all this, the purpose for being transformed by the renewal of our mind is that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What does the will of God mean? We need to say that because there's at least two different meanings of the will of God in Scripture. One meaning of the will of God is his sovereign or secret will, where he ordains whatever comes to pass. So we don't, we don't know what that is until it happens. But the will of God that he's talking about here is the revealed moral will of God. Why does he say, by testing you may discern God's will? can also be translated approve God's will. So we need to discern and approve God's will. Doing God's will as living sacrifice is often hard, but, I, but my goal is to delight in it. But by testing, we discern it because many issues are hard to discern how to apply God's word. There's a lot of things that the word of God doesn't specifically address in the way that it happens to us. So I need constant mind renewal to keep testing what I'm learning about God's will so that I can discern what is good pleasing to God and what is perfect. I won't get perfection in this life, but I want to keep longing for and loving and living his perfect will. The point is, God's will is perfect. Oftentimes I've talked to people who have been struggling with a problem or a relationship problem or some problem that they, they haven't been able to um, recognize how to obey God in. And we say, well, let's look at the word of God. What does it say? Here's what it says. Have you, have you done this? Yes. Well, then keep doing it. Well, I tried it and it didn't work. And the problem is not with God's will. The problem is with us. And we live in a broken world, so sometimes doing God's will runs into interference. Athletes and military um, personnel train, they keep testing what they learn so they increasingly internalize and respond in mind and body according to the good principles they're learning so that they begin responding more and more automatically according to their training, to the, the will of what they're instructed to do. So here's some scenarios. In Romans 12:9, so in a few verses ahead, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, yeah, I, could, I want my love to be genuine. But what if I'm to genuinely love my, my friend, but I, but I must abhor what is evil? What if I know my friend is cheating on his wife? How do I love him and abhor what is evil? 
Or in Ephesians 6.4, it says, don't provoke, parents, don't provoke your children to anger, to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, what if bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord makes them angry? So how do I manage that? What if a gay relative wants to marry their same-sex par partner? Do you go to the wedding? What if they want to stay in your home as guests? How do you discern God's will, the good, acceptable, pleasing to God, perfect will in how you spend your money? TV and movie watching. Social media time. Books and blogs you read. Difficult issues at work. How much and which video games you play. Caring for aging parents. Here's one that you'll never experience. Handling conflicts in family. Loving an annoying spouse that, who may never change. Being an annoying spouse that's having a hard time changing. Do you just conform to the world's ways of handling these things? Do you just go with the flow? Or as one who, because of the mercies of God, dedicates every area of your life to God as your spiritual worship and being transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Examine the will of God. Study the will of God. Put it to the test. Discuss it in groups. Pray about it. Confess where you fail. Repent. Pursue the will of God. And the hope is, as much as we fail daily to do God's will and to discern it and to approve of it, as much as we fail, our hope is because of God's mercies in the one who presented his body as the perfect, living, holy, pleasing sacrifice, Jesus is our hope, our forgiver, our rescuer, our sanctifier. He's the one who sets us up for growing and discerning and approving the will of God. Father, we thank you that you've given us the perfect worshiper, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, who demonstrated a life completely devoted to your will, even though it cost him his life. So he said, Father, I don't want to become the sin bearer. I don't want to suffer. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to your will in every way. He perfectly obeyed you. And because of his perfect obedience, all of the failures on our part to obey your will can be forgiven. And because you've given us your spirit, you can continue to grow us in delighting and desiring to do your will, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So we're not squeezed into the world's mold, but we're shaped into Christ's mold. Do that, Father. Your word says that's what you want to do. So would you do it in our midst? Continue to cause our humble efforts, uh, teaching your word, at fellowshipping around your word about worshiping you. All that we do, Father, infiltrate with your grace and your mercy. Because of your mercies, we can present ourselves to you as living holy sacrifices. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving us life in Christ to be 
living holy for you. In his name we pray. Amen.